Vanessa. Hi, Adam. Welcome to Uncertain Things. Why, thank you. How <laughs> courteous. We are, we are going to get really, really serious now. Uh, we've been mm. putting this off, kind of, um, but we are about to talk about Dubs v. Jackson, mm. the overturning of Roe. We did mention it with David French. David is, of course, pro-life, spent much of his career fighting for that cause, but he also understands how difficult this issue is. And despite his deep moral conviction, doesn't let it turn into a cheap culture war fight. So it was valuable for me to have this discussion with him, um, not least to show that it's possible to have this high voltage subject discussed with cross ideological empathy and humility. Now, following this discussion, it was important for us to bring somebody who is a strong advocate from the other side. Yeah, not only that, but I also just wanted to get more into this topic because I I obviously had been hearing a lot about it in the, you know, in the news and the headlines. But I wanted to have a conversation with somebody who I felt like would explain to me what the ruling was about and and also, you know, give a give a different perspective than David French in terms of the 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 drawbacks of it because clearly you know david french was thrilled about clearly dogs. and you know i i was less and so i wanted to talk to someone who could provide that perspective as as well as explain it to me so we brought on our friend Carissa lancaster uh who to kind of enlighten us uh she's a lawyer by trade educated in the law like david and also like david has been an activist on this issue for quite some time but in defense of the pro-choice cause so it was really important to me that the David and Carissa conversations happened not in the immediate aftermath of the Dobbs ruling when the media was predictably aflame and following our ethos on uncertain things. They wanted to get some distance before starting to talk about the many layers of this decision, what it actually means legally, what are the consequences for women's rights, for physicians' rights, what were the meta jurisprudential questions that were at play in this decision? And how does somebody like Krisa, who on the one hand is fiercely committed to the cause of women reproductive rights, on the other also believes she has the power to help bridge this gulf of discord by engaging in a dispassionate uh, intellectual analysis? And how does she walk this tightrope? And how does she reconcile the, the cognitive dissonance in herself? So I recommend listening to this conversation in juxtaposition with our previous interview with David French, because fall where you may on the abortion debate, here are two people who are reckoning with it, fully aware of the millions of lives that are being affected and driven by their moral convictions, and yet not succumbing to the constant temptation to go full culture war. Yeah, or vapid punditry. Which I consider uh, a form of violence, really. <laughs> how liberal of you, how progressive. Yeah, my new motto in homage to the silence is violence, loathsome trend is uh-huh. bullshit is violence. I think you got to fine tune that. Really? Bullshit is, you need another word that rhymes with bullshit. That's violent in tone. No, rhyming is also violence. <laughs> oh, also, we 
talk about the ramifications of this decision to other precedents, whether they're at risk of being overturned. And we actually have some bonus content that we didn't include in this episode about the leak. Ah, yes. If you remember, the uh, Dobbs v. Jackson draft, the Alito draft, was leaked to the press uh, more than a month before the decision actually came out. But this part we actually recorded as an exclusive bonus content for our Substack subscribers. Ah, so if you're a paid Substack subscriber, you get that content. So pat yourself on the shoulder <laughs> and plug in your earbuds. Uncertain.substack.com. Before we begin, mm. because we are talking to a lawyer, we must do the thing, the legal disclaimer thing. So our guest today wanted us to say that nothing Carissa says constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always consult an attorney in your state to talk about your specific situation and any legal questions you might have. So this is not legal advice. Get a lawyer if you need. And with that, Carissa Lancaster, not legal advice. <laughs> so, Carissa, we got the disclaimers out of the way. <laughs> legal disclaimers. They cover asses. <laughs> they do. They really do. Well, thanks for joining us to get into a conversation about something you know a lot about, I am learning about, and Adam, I don't know where you fall. You're somewhere in the middle between us, I suppose. Yeah, I just come at it as a journalist with a background in legal history, which means I studied history with a penchant for law, which means I know nothing. So, Krisa, educate us. Okay. Yeah, and I would like to start by saying that I think uh, don't buy into the hype of attorneys. I think one of the biggest problems in our legal system is how much there's smoke and ears that make the average person think that they're not entitled to have an opinion or wouldn't be competent to have one. Um, from reading 213 pages of uh, mostly drivel, uh, which is the recent Dobbs v. Jackson ruling, I can certainly say that plenty of laymen on the street would have much more well-reasoned and informed opinions about this than uh, the justices that wrote in their opinion. So I, I would like to, you know, disclaim that basically do not allow yourself to be talked down to anybody mm. in these kind of things. We are all humans. We're all qualified to talk about how we want society to be organized and what we think are the best governments in order to organize societies, all of us. So as you can see, we, we're going to get a uh, dispassionate uh, and balanced <laughs> perspective from Carissa. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if I am definitely very motivated uh, to care about the law. And, you know, I, I want to, it's, it's less so about partisanship and more about, I am very passionate about helping everybody create a better law, you know, and world. Yes. And we're going to get into this because this is <laughs> one of the most interesting things. First, let's, let's set the stage and help us understand what this is all about from the perspective of law. Yes. When we were talking about how to frame this at the heart of everything, we have this question about, um, those three uh, inscrutable words, substantive due process? Yes. What the fuck? <laughs> okay. So um, what um, this really hinges on is the 14th Amendment. So if I could uh, do the lawyer thing right at the beginning and just read you the text of the 14th Amendment. Okay, the 14th Amendment says, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. 
So that is the 14th Amendment, and it says there, without due process of law. So when we talk about the due process arguments, it is that language in the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Now, when uh, courts have interpreted what due process means in that clause, they tend to talk about it in two separate ways. One, there is procedural due process, and two, there is substantive due process. I'm going to start with procedural due process because it's easier to explain. What procedural due process is basically, if I'm a state legislator in Arkansas and I pass a law that says you do X, Y, Z, it's going to violate this law. And if you violate this law, you need to be prosecuted in criminal court in the state. And also you can be fined for up to $15,000 for violating this law. What procedural due process is, is it's making sure that if I'm a judge in Arkansas, I don't just try them in civil court instead of criminal court, and then also try to find them $25,000 or $30,000 for violating that law. If I did that, it would be violating the procedure that's laid out in the law. The procedure makes it clear. You can find up to $15,000. You have to try them in criminal court. And then if I am a person that is practicing law in the country and I don't follow that procedure, I would be violating procedural due process. Okay. And that's not in the Constitution. That's just something that subsequently decided we decided that that qualifies as procedural due process. Yeah, right. So, I mean, in general, we uh, do not have a civil law system. That's Europe. We have common law system. And what a common law system is basically we'll want to keep our laws relatively short. And then we provide a lot of opportunity for courts to then say what those laws mean over time. So there's a lot of, you know, jurisprudence and history of jurisprudence that builds upon our laws. And that's basically what a common law system is. So yeah, it's, it's that this was further defined and clarified by courts. So that's procedural due process. Substantive due process is a little bit harder to define and explain. It is a little um, opaque, uh, I would say, uh, kind of purposely. But what substantive due process is, is it's basically saying that there are certain fundamental rights that we have as citizens that were not enumerated in the Constitution. Um, and that, you know, the Constitution is not meant to be all-encompassing for every right that a citizen could have because then the Constitution would be too vast, right? And so certain fundamental rights can be read into the Constitution and that if you pass a law that violates those fundamental rights, you are violating substantive due process. In other words, it asserted the court's power to discover unenumerated rights and to incorporate them onto the states that is making them legally constitutionally binding. And this is a controversial doctrinal matter that um, conservatives and primarily Justice Thomas really fought against. Thomas thinks that the idea of a due process that focuses on substance is oxymoronic, but we'll get to that. How does substantive due process get applied? So one fundamental right that is at issue in this argument today in terms of Dobbs v. Jackson, Roe v. Wade, Casey, all those cases, is the fundamental right to privacy. That wasn't explicitly put into the Constitution. However, courts have tended to decide that is a fundamental right that didn't need to be explicitly enumerated, and we do have. And so states, if they pass laws that get rid of our right to privacy, would be violating substantive due process. And when did this emerge, this idea that we have a right to privacy? How, how soon after the Constitution? <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, it wasn't, uh, I can only speak on just uh, Supreme Court jurisprudence. 
Um, so, you know, there could have been state courts or district courts that, you know, went into it and, and their rulings, who, who knows, but at least when it comes to Supreme Court, Griswold v. Connecticut in 1965 was the first to explicitly say there's a fundamental right to privacy in the Constitution. And Griswold v. Connecticut uh, was, in 1965, it's not very far away from Roe, which was 1973, that was about whether married couples could have access to contraception. And hmm. Connecticut passed a law saying that even if you're married, uh, it, it would be illegal to get a prescription for birth control. And then, uh, you know... From the same logic, obviously, that a husband can't rape his wife, right? Which was <laughs> the assumption of many laws around the world. Um, I don't necessarily want to conjecture <laughs> in terms of if that's... But yeah, I'd say it's the same genre of, um, <laughs> of fuckery. So... <laughs> Okay, so so and you said it it it's fun. It becomes a fundamental right after 1965. It's not necessarily it's not it's not said explicitly in the Constitution, but v- via this 1965 court, Supreme Court ruling, they decided that yes, it is in fact fundamental. Yes. So the Supreme Court went forward uh, with the assumption of privacy as a fundamental right now. Uh, in terms of reading privacy into the Constitution and a fundamental right, so it's not enumerated, but can we say that it's implied in certain parts of the Constitution? I would say there's a very strong argument that privacy is baked into the cake here, and some of those arguments are the Fifth Amendment. So uh, it, the Fifth Amendment provides protection from individuals from being compelled to incriminate themselves, right? That's, that's the right against self-incrimination. If you think about what that actually means, if you're testifying and you say, no, I don't, I don't want to answer that question, right? It, it's, I, I plead the fifth. That reads in privacy, right? It's basically saying you have a right to keep that information private if you're testifying. So there's privacy baked into the Fifth Amendment. Um, there's also in the First Amendment, uh, there was privacy that was implied because there was the rights of association between people in the First Amendment. And a lot of, in order to keep that right, you need some sort of privacy. In other words, the government can't come in and say, who are you associating with? You can keep that private. There in the Fourth Amendment, there was rights to be secure against unreasonable search and seizure. And that also clearly has a privacy component, right? It's, it's you can keep your effects and stuff private against the government. Can't They can't just come in and search your things and figure out what's going on. Uh, there's also in the Ninth Amendment, uh, it makes it very clear that um, not every single enumerated right is all the rights that you have. Uh, so I think you can look at the Constitution and in many places find this right to privacy. However, the word privacy is not explicitly put in there. Um, so before we move forward, and please remember where you stopped before I distracted you. <laughs> that idea of discovering unenumerated rights, how, like, is, that, is that normally the, uh, the court's approach when trying to understand what right might exist that hasn't been explicitly spelled out in the Constitution. You look at other amendments and and parts of the Constitution and try to understand what rights were implicit in it? Or do you go further back and kind of try to understand what contextually would have been taken for granted by the framers or writers of laws? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So, How do you enumerate an unenumerated right? <laughs> I think what you're talking there is um, a- about a philosophical question that has been popping up in the court recently in terms of strict constructivists and also originalists. Um, so yeah, what, that's basically, totally what I was doing. In, in originalist <laughs> interpretation of the Constitution, well, I, I would like to say strict constructivism and originalism is normally a minority way of looking at things. Um, kind of always has been, was considered um, a little fringe for a long time. So for instance, uh, there was... Uh, um, Oh, goodness. Now I'm forgetting his name. So uh, 
Bork, that's it. Uh, Bork was nominated um, to be a Supreme Court jurist, and he did not uh, pass, um, he did not get confirmed because he was a strict constructionist. And at the time in 1987, that was considered really too fringe um, to be such an originalist. Uh, So basically what that philosophical way of looking at the Constitution is, is saying, yes, we need to go into the minds of the people that were writing the Constitution, the framers, and say, how did they conceptualize this when they were writing it? How did their mind interpret usage of words in that period? And only interpret the document that way. Don't look at it as if it's a living, breathing document. Don't look at it as if uh, the definitions of words can change or are mutable. See it as much more static than that. And the argument for originalism or strict constructivism is saying that basically, uh, if we allow the meanings of words to morph too much, then it will entirely lose its significance. And um, what we really should do instead is rewrite a document. We can uh, go to our legislature and just pass laws, or we can pass amendments or, you know, rewrite a thing instead of keep changing the definitions of words in this static document to fit whatever you now want it to be. So that uh, originalism, I think the best defense fit that I can think of is saying that it is encouraging the democratic process and people come in and rewrite or pass new laws. So Um, if not from a strict constructionist perspective, how do you derive um, unenumerated rights? But I just I just want to back up a second just to say, like, what, how would those folks even justify any unenumerated rights? Right. Because it, it supposedly. But that's the Ninth Amendment. Right. They, the, the Constitution clearly says that there are okay. unenumerated rights. So for even though you have to get into the mindset of the framers, you could just be like, would they have thought about other rights that then we can now justify? That's that's the that's their methodology. So the most recent Supreme Court ruling, um, you know, uh, very explicitly talks about what a strict constructionist uh, viewpoint of unenumerated rights would be. And that is, is that for an unenumerated right to be in the Constitution, it needs to be expressly there. So that's kind of a nothing burger statement. It's basically like, then it wouldn't be unenumerated or (laughs) deeply rooted in the firm traditions of the American people. So that is what the majority opinion uh, in this most recent Supreme Court ruling very explicitly said, that for uh, that it needed to be deeply rooted in the traditions of the American people at the time that the you know that Constitution was written. And then the majority opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson went into a lot of the history of abortion and uh, how it was would have been conceptualized by the framers at the time. Basically, like this is how it was viewed at the time. So therefore we can't read in an unenumerated right to privacy to get an abortion because uh, that was clearly not considered a right during the time that the constitution is written. Now, I would like to put a disclaimer there that I think that is playing very fast and loose with the history. So if we look at the history of laws about abortion, um, yes, to a certain extent, there was some concept of Uh, no right for women to have an abortion in terms of uh, they cited uh, Sir, I think, Thomas Cook um, or Coke. I don't really, Sir Edward Coke um, in 1644 saying that abortion is a crime. um, And they quoted some of his writings in the majority opinion. Uh, However, now Sir Edward Kirk was absolutely crazy. He also tried and killed witches 
during the time that he was a judge. Uh, they also quoted Matthew Hale talking about how abortion is is criminal and morally unconscionable uh, and, you know, ending potential life. But on the other hand, looking at the historical documents, a thing that the majority opinion did not talk about, but the dissent did talk about, is if you're doing a historical analysis of abortion, um, that there was abortions practiced widely during the time that the Constitution was written. I mean, for instance, uh, there was generally a concept that if you have an abortion before quickening, that it was morally acceptable. And so there was a fair amount of procedures performed before quickening. And there was historical documents talking about that. Uh, abortion procedures were widely written about. Quickening was when you felt some some sort of stirring, right, within the womb? Yes, yes, that, that that's quickening. It's, it's basically like you get a sense of movement. So uh, normally quickening uh, would not be happening in the first trimester. Um, so first trimester abortion procedures were um, certainly at least partially accepted in the 1700s in America. Um, and throughout the world. Uh, you know, when we talk about medical history, the very first recorded medical procedure ever in the course of human history that we have is uh, a papyrus roll talking about an abortion procedure uh, that, that was in Egypt. Uh, so in terms of going all the way back to the beginnings of any sort of medicine, we have had abortion, abortion procedures, and some level of societal acceptance for that. Uh, so I think the dissent would certainly say the historical analysis of looking at was firmly rooted in the traditions of the American people is more up for debate than the majority opinion would like to say. Mm -hmm. But but regardless, basically the the position here from for those that were more on the originalist side is that we we are going to derive truth from the history the 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 17th or 18th century conception of <laughs> conception pardon the pun of what uh was moral when it came to abortion that's where they're supposedly flimsy as it may seem they're that that's the argument they're they're trying to make yes <laughs> okay it seems like a weird place to derive truth but okay let's go with that i mean it's not about truth for i mean even if we're as charitable as possible it's not about deriving truth it's about deriving a sense of legal uh tradition right because we're not we're not it's not about morality in the broadest sense it's about we're trying to find what the law is yes but it's an odd i don't know it just it feels like an odd an odd way to do it but yeah, I mean, okay. not, not not to not to <laughs> dive into metaethics and uh, yeah. and meta law and all that, but just to take originalism as seriously as possible mm -hmm. and give it its best hearing. The idea of losing any sense of of rootedness to where the original founding documents came from has some valiance in the sense that. You need to be, in order for a, a, a third-party legal system to work properly, it does need to be, to some extent, removed from moral considerations and the vagaries of, of public opinion and tied to procedure and constrained by uh, a strong, difficult-to-change blueprint. Otherwise, as Scalia says, you're at sea. You, you you might as well just be driven by fa changing fashions and modes. In the case of the U.S., this principally goes back to the founding documents. However incomplete, flawed, and even corrupt 
some of them were. And then it's a question of how do you include a mechanism for change and evolution. And in, in our case, it's that it's in the local level. The smaller you get, the more changeable and mutable it is. But then the further up you go on the legal ladder, when you get to constitutional rights, it's at its most strict, slowest moving, and least prone to change. And that makes sense because you don't want to have a Donald Trump just sweep in and decide freedom of expression is now limited to truth social. So then how do you understand what do those old rigid words of the founding documents mean? So being too adaptive and too attuned to changing vocabulary opens you up to populist mood swings, which is exactly what a constitutional right should resist and be immune to. Or it gives too much freedom for the judge to read in whatever ethical preferences they have, which, by the way, is exactly what's happening in, in Israel to some extent in lieu of a constitution. So considering all of this, attempting to understand what the original intention of the framers were is potentially a useful thought experiment in order to guard against being overly influenced by a volatile political environment. Now, whether or not this is realistic as mm -hmm. a method and more relevantly, whether or not originalist jurists actually uh, live up to it <laughs> is a completely different question. Well, I mean, I would say uh, um, in terms of stare decisis, which is basically let the decision stand and, you know, uh, not overturning precedent. I've heard this term like a thousand times in the last week, but I still don't exactly understand what it means. Yeah. So stare decisis is one of those legalese uh, Latin terms uh, that we use to uh, confuse people. Uh, yeah. And what stare decisis simply means is, you know, it translates roughly to let the decision stand. And what that means in terms of legal jurisprudence is to say that do not try to reverse precedent or reverse course that a court had previously set. Try to yes and the logic that has been set out previously instead of say no but. And if the law keeps going no but, as in not following established precedent, not following stare decisis, what you end up doing is losing legitimacy of the courts and losing the faith of the people. And that is very, that is how governments fall. So to a certain extent, I mean, uh, which feeds into the, the feeling that a lot of commentators have that the law is lacking any real principled rootedness and the state of the law for the next decade is going to be determined solely by the party identification of the appointer of the justice. Right. That that is the fear with uh, not following stare decisis is exactly that. I will say, though, um, we need to have context on 1973 and Roe v. Wade. So uh, it was considered a pretty big leap, Roe v. Wade, when it happened. And in fact, uh, there was a Justice, Justice White who wrote a dissent that explicitly said Roe was an act of raw judicial power, as in this is too far. This is pushing it too far. This needs to be a thing that is left up to the democratic process in states. And we really, we outdid ourselves here. We took too big of a leap and we may lose our legitimacy. It was a seven to two decision and finding these fun, this fundamental right uh, was pretty grand and sweeping at the time. And uh, certainly you could argue immediately 
backfired in terms of so many people were upset that it was taken out of the hands of state legislatures and they felt like they didn't have a voice because the Supreme Court says this is a fundamental right that has started grassroots movements all over the United States uh, that were, you know, anti-choice. I like to say anti-choice. Uh, they they like to call themselves pro-life um, to fight against Roe v. Wade and mobilize and have huge funding pushes and uh, start all these crisis pregnancy centers and on and on and on. I mean, there was a backlash that was pretty big. So you could argue that 1973 was uh, too much of um, the justices being activists in the and same way. And that's the context in which uh, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote about it being a breathtaking ruling comes in, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, was, uh, it, it was a breathtaking ruling. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg specifically didn't like that the fundamental right to privacy in the due process clause is what Roe v. Wade was based on. Ruth Bader Ginsburg specifically wanted instead to be equal protection under the law uh, clause that uh, Roe v. Wade would be based on. And she actually so was kind of critical of the ruling uh, for that reason. She thought equal protection would be a stronger legal argument and could make Roe v. Wade uh, be upheld for longer. Um, and, you know, who knows? Which makes her uh, uh, an ideological partner of Clarence Thomas, right? Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, but we're going to get back to the substantive <laughs> process later. But um, Right. As we start closing the parentheticals, you started, uh, you went back to Roe to explain the context of stare decisis to answer Vanessa's question. Uh, yeah, as in basically at, at the end of the day, Roe was a giant leap. <laughs> Um, and how, you know, that's not necessarily about uh, starry decisis in so much as it's about activist judges and losing legitimacy in the eyes of the people. So the problem with overturning uh, established precedent and starry decisis would be that you fear losing legitimacy in the eyes of the people and how activist Roe v. Wade was like at the time was also potentially rocking right. the faith of people. So so in, in other words, you're, you're making, again, you're... You're doing the, the almost the devil advocacy thing here. You are the point is that criticizing Dobbs because it violated stare decisis is not a particularly useful approach because Roe in itself was already potentially uh, uh, I don't know uh, uh, a firebombing of of uh, Supreme Court uh, standards. Yeah. So I mean, I certainly I think. As a private citizen, I have my personal beliefs that I would like abortion rights to be protected. Uh, however, if I do believe that, then what is the best way to go about that, I think is kind of an open question. And I think there is a very good faith argument that if you do want abortion rights to be protected, that it should be passed through legislatures. Um, and so that potentially these uh, abortion rights hinging so much on this huge Supreme Court ruling <laughs> is just not the right way to go about it in terms of making it be a firmly established thing going forward, because there will always be a discomfort and a tension with American people of a Supreme Court being able to um, change up your life so much so quickly uh, in, the, in the blink of eye, because there is a sense of, well, we didn't vote them in. Uh, we didn't have a say. There, there wasn't a, a referendum. And if you look at other countries, okay, um, if you look at, for instance, Ireland, uh, which recently, uh, well, 
quasi recently, uh, basically uh, granted its citizens abortion rights. That was a referendum in Ireland. It basically was just people vote. And then they got abortion rights. That also happened in Brazil, in a lot of international places. How abortion rights come to be in the country is that there's, there's direct vote. People feel like they have a say. In America, however, you know, it's these court decisions. And you could say that that makes it uh, less stable rights. So potentially Roe v. Wade may have been the wrong way to go about it to begin with. It may have led us here. And if we want, um, if we want this to really, really be codified, then federal laws need to be passed. State laws need to be passed. But really on the federal level, there needs to be a push for legislation. Uh, and maybe that's a reasonable argument. And maybe if this Supreme Court ruling uh, galvanized a push for a federal law, then maybe it's ultimately in a decade or so will be a good thing for people that believe in abortion rights because hmm. it, it pushed us into finally doing that. It, it got a fire under our butt. Um, so that's, you know, that that's my good faith argument for what could be silver linings here. I, I was just saying that uh, yesterday that um, for, to me, it's a, I, I, maybe I'm being too optimistic, but I see it as a pretty thick silver lining because a few days ago there was an article about how many lobbyists of progressive causes after the EPA decision. So both environmentalists and um, women privacy rights and a lot of progressive causes say that they are tired of Washington and they're going to redirect their efforts to the states. And, you know, one, one of the best good faith conservatives, uh, civil opponents that, that I consider in the public discourse <laughs> shared that with the, with a small comment of by golly, they got it. And I, I actually share that. I think this is a much more useful. I generally hate the federalization of everything and a more lasting consensus, a more lasting success, or hopefully uh, a, a broader progressive revolution will only happen if it comes uh, if it actually like like gets thick roots around the country and not if it gets I don't even think that a, a federal uh, legislation can solve this because it will just be overturned and even galvanize a reactionary right to to overturn it. So local local changes. It's not, not ideal. And it's going to mean that many states are going to suffer a lot of injustices in the next 10 years. But those injustices hopefully will be the ones that will galvanize the 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 long term change. Yeah, I, I think I, I would agree with you as in uh, it is always lovely when individual citizens get more of a sense of an ability to do something and the importance that they do something. You know, so the advantage of local change is it stops you and I or anybody from feeling impotent in order to change our surroundings and our government and our society. I do, do want to ask, Carissa, because I mean, that's the, the silver lining, the thing that one could look to, to to feel optimistic, but there's a lot in this decision that will make, I would imagine you and a lot of people very uh, not optimistic and sad for the future of our country at the same time. I do want to get into it, but, but before we do, I mean, I would just want to make sure we've kind of dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's in terms of like, where are we with this decision? So what happened exactly? They decided Roe v. Wade was... 
I want to be clear though, because uh-huh. you're using uh, the word optimism because I mentioned yeah. it before, but what I said, I'm optimistic. I'm referring to optimism about being galvanized to act locally. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about the rights themselves, I think we're in it for some dark times, seeing a lot of bleak shit. Right. The only thing I'm saying is that for the long term to enshrine these rights, it has to be codified by a groundswell of democratic support for them, rather than pinning it on the sport of who wins the next Supreme Court seat. Yeah. And I mean, at least in terms of the text, the decision, if I could get into basically what Dobbs v. Jackson says. Yeah. So what Dobbs v. Jackson basically said is that the the main argument uh, was written by Samuel Alito, um, Justice Alito, and to get into uh, who Dobbs and what Jackson is real quick, uh, Thomas E. Dobbs, he was the state health officer in the Mississippi Department of Health. And then uh, Jackson Women's Health uh, sued because Jackson Women's Health was the only clinic in the whole state that was still performing abortion procedures. So it was the only place that had standing in order to sue. Um, and they sued over a law that was a 15-week ban that was passed in Mississippi Um, That 15-week ban, uh, it should be noted, did not have any exception for rape, incest. Um, So the only real exception is to save the life of the mother. Uh, But that does mean if an 11-year-old girl um, conceives by her father uh, under this law, uh, it would not be lawful for her to terminate after 15 weeks. So Jackson Women's Health sued um, and then went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And what the Supreme Court basically said is that its substantive due process here uh, does not uh, have a right to privacy that would um, support abortions. Uh, It did cordon off abortions and say that that is um, morally different and a different category of legal choices than other rulings that uh, also had substantive due process arguments and privacy arguments in it, other rulings such as um, the ruling in Obergefeld, and I always mispronounce that, so excuse me, but that was the gay marriage ruling. Obergefeld? Um, thank you, Obergefeld. See, it, it's just that word. It always trips me up every <laughs> single time. Um, and uh, so basically, Kavanaugh and also the majority opinion tried to say, we're just talking about abortion rights and substantive due process. We're not necessarily throwing out the baby with bathwater and throwing out every substantive due process um, you know, holding that this court has made. We're just talking about abortion rights, substantive due process just does not protect them. Um, and then if it throws out that, so that would overturn Roe, that would overturn Casey, then what does the Supreme Court say moving forward? The standard for the constitutionality of laws that states pass about abortion are, is, and it said that it's going to revert back to a rational basis test in terms of assessing the constitutionality of those laws. What a rational basis test is, Legally, it is an extremely low bar. Basically, it's saying, is there any rationality behind this law whatsoever? And if there is, then it stands as constitutional and we're not going to strike it down. So it, I mean, it created a free-for-all, basically. Um, And then it also went into why stare decisis isn't the end-all be-all, why it isn't a straitjacket. The language specifically in the majority opinion says stare decisis is not an, an inexorable command. Um, so it doesn't always need to be followed. However, of course, and, and once again, stare decisis is let the decision stand, so basically precedent. Uh, it did set up a five-prong, I'm going to call it test. Uh, I think the, the majority opinion may have called it factors, but five-prong test in order to consider whether we overturn stare decisis. So going forward, 
what is the rationale to overturn established precedent? And the majority opinion gave five different uh, factors to assess when we're talking about whether we should overturn established precedent. Um, Real quick, those five prongs are the nature of the error, the quality of the reasoning, how workable was the regime in place prior, was it interfering with other areas of law, aka disruptive, and is there reliance? So those are the prongs. I'm going to get into the prongs real briefly. (laughs) Time, nature of the air. Uh, Quality of the reasoning. Um, And then also, was it interfering with the other areas of law? So how disruptive. So in terms of then assessing it in regards to Roe v. Wade and why overturning Roe v. Wade is justifiable in the majority opinion of the court and Dobbs v. Jackson, the nature of the error that the majority opinion said that happened in Roe v. Wade was it was a misinterpretation of the Constitution. Um, And having an error about something that is so fundamental to our democracy, it is important to overturn precedent that has such a huge fundamental error, an error about interpreting the Constitution. So, um, oh, a nature of the error. Yes, E R R O R. I kept hearing air. No, 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 no. like, what does it mean? No, Got no. It. so it, you know, it, it's where did the court? So, in terms of should we overturn this established precedent? One of the factors being basically nature of the error means well, how big of an f up was this precedent? You know, was it a really, really big mistake that they made? And the bigger the mistake, the more important it is to overturn. And so the argument in the majority opinion here is it was a huge mistake in Roe because they read in this huge thing into the Constitution that shouldn't apply. And so it basically set up a standard of misinterpreting the Constitution, which is such a fundamental document to our democracy. It's very important to correct this error. Um, So that's one of the factors. Then second factor is quality of the reasoning, which is basically this established precedent you know, how good was the reasoning in it? You know, how well thought out was this precedent? And basically a legal reading of that part of this test in the majority opinion, it just went into a diss track of Roe, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, uh, the majority opinion Alito said that it was an error from the start, uh, went on to pages of just scathing critique of the opinion, uh, was just ripping into Roe in a whole bunch of ways, saying that viability is a poor reasoning, it's too fluid of a standard, just on and on about kind of the reasoning in Roe was poor. And I don't want to necessarily get into the weeds with it, other than um, that appears to be the majority opinion of the court here. So then factor three, how workable was the regime that was in place prior? So in other words, this established precedent, did it set up something that is workable? Uh, legally? Does it, is it something, is it a framework that states can follow and we can comprehend? And so the majority opinion said here that Roe was not a very workable regime. It said undue burden, which is too vague of language for states to understand in their legislatures moving forward. Uh, It also used language about no substantial obstacle to abortion rights, which also uh, the majority opinion in Dobbs found too vague a term. Um, Also, terms such as unnecessary health restrictions were deemed too vague. Basically, in a nutshell, Alito said this was not a workable regime set by Roe because it was way too vague of language that was mutable and just incomprehensible by the states, created a lot of confusion about um, what type of restrictions we can put on, if at all. 
Okay, then on to, there's only two other factors. Factor four, was it interfering with other areas of the law, as in, was it disruptive? So was this um, precedent disruptive? This kind of gets in the legal weeds a fair amount and goes into race judicata principles and third-party standing issues. But basically, in a nutshell, it said, yes, it was very disruptive to many areas of the law. And so that was the conclusion there. And, you know, I don't necessarily want to debate that with with Justice Alito. The last factor is their reliance. This was probably, um, speaking as a personal citizen, the factor that was one of the hardest things to read in the opinion because of, um, I didn't see Justice Alito's argument made in this section to be in good faith, frankly. It was so off that it struck me as bad faith argument. But um, what he said in terms of reliance is he wrote a stunningly short section, basically saying conventional concrete reliance interests are not present here. So no, it wasn't relied upon. Roe v. Wade wasn't relied upon. Um, and then goes just a little bit further into saying, uh, you know, and there's all sorts of areas of reliance that we just can't tell and we can't know. And it's almost not even worth knowing uh, when it comes and, to Roe. And like what you, what you had said to us previously is like, well, you there's a very clear when you're a lawyer it's very clear to sh prove or disprove reliance there's literally a database of court cases that you go to and you can see how many cases rely upon this ruling and so it's actually a pretty like black and white way or metric for determining reliance that he didn't even reach to right yeah uh so i mean that's why i saw it as just a bad faith argument um sometimes i uh as an attorney, you always want to keep in your mind an ability to put yourself in the legal reasoning of the other party's shoes. Um, so that was when you can't do that, it's uh, upsetting. And the reliance argument, and in, in, I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't put myself in, in um, Alito's shoes with this in terms of trying to even parse it because reliance, normally you can figure that out by how often a case is cited in other rulings. So, you know, um, this ruling in Jobs v. Jackson, 213 pages, if I am a judge in another court, like five years or so, um, and I'm making a ruling on a different matter, I will often cite the legal language out of Jobs v. Jackson and put it into my opinion. Um, so, and then if you are an attorney, you go on to something called LexisNexis or Westlaw, and you can search how often this ruling is cited, quoted, in other rulings. And it gives you numbers, you know, X, Y, Z amount of cases, 400 cases cite this ruling, 500 cases. I mean, it's, you know, there's actual numeric values and you can find it very easily if you're doing legal research. And I see that as empirical proof on how often something is relied upon. It's just how often is it cited in other rulings? And Roe v. Wade, uh, to the extent that I know, I think it was one of the most frequently cited rulings in the history of American jurisprudence. It was cited all over the place all the time. So the concept of it, therefore, we don't have proof that it was relied upon from a legal perspective is nuts to me, frankly. Hmm. Um, then in terms of not speaking about whether the legal community relied upon this precedent, uh, whether women personally relied upon this precedent, and I think that was the angle that Alito was trying to come at, he was basically saying, well, you can't rely upon abortion rights because abortions by their nature are unplanned. So if you're not planning uh, using this ruling, uh, then you're not relying 
upon it. Um, and so I think that was the way that he was trying to look at it from the angle of, of not relied upon, that uh, reliance would mean you make plans uh, on the assumption of, of a ruling and nobody plans abortion. So therefore, um, Roe v. Wade isn't relied upon widely. But, you know, once again, I, I find that a pretty... Um, Tortuous? <laughs> well, speaking, speaking as a woman, um, you know, that, that's... Uh, uh, I have various um, choice words... Uh, in, in response to that kind of argument, I see it as spurious. So choice words, I like that. <laughs> and just to be clear here, like this five-part reason, the structure of like why we're going against precedent. Like this is weird, right? Like this is like usually at a Supreme Court ruling, they'd be like, "Yeah, precedent is the shit. That's what we're about. We're gonna like uphold it." Whereas it is a little, it is odd, right? That they're like, "We're not only gonna overturn." precedent we're going to sh- tell you how to overturn it in future i i isn't that i i think that uh, actually i understand it differently like okay it is because they again i hate being in the place i for my ignorant reading of both this and the um their gun decision i i especially the gun decision because that one i was paying attention closely from the historian perspective and i found it to be uh, let's say less than persuasive as a read of history, but um, again, trying to be dispassionate about it. If you're going to overturn precedent, you better justify it and, and create a very clear system to doing it so that you're not basically opening the door to anyone can come in and just um, um, upturn the decisions that they don't like in a few more years when the composition of the court changes then suddenly everything that's been decided right now can be completely reversed without effort because, look, they just did it with Roe. So being ostensibly cautious about overturning precedents and trying to lay out the system according to, to which you do so seems prudent. Of course, um, as as Chris has said, the system itself was... Um, her choice of word was spurious, but the but the attempt makes sense, I think. Yeah, I mean, um... let's put it this way: if and when uh, a liberal majority comes in uh, to try to overturn Dobbs, they don't know if that that would be necessary. But if that's if that happens, or any other decision by this court that I find disagreeable, like say Bruin, if and when this happens, I also would like the court to at least have. Uh, a facially sincere attempt to justify carefully why they're overturning it and not just say, we're in power now, F you. Well, um, so I think that's a very big philosophical question that I have struggled with in my decision to come on to this podcast, period, which is that um, in a 213-page opinion, there's going to be a lot of things said. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the stuff that's said, all of the words, why create an opinion that long? Well, at the end of the day, it's because you're trying to create a veneer of legitimacy. Um, and that I don't kind of, it's hard for me to believe that even talking about kind of the legal opinion here and some of the Latin language and what stare decisis means and the five-pronged test could be bolstering more of this veneer of legitimacy, that even uh, getting into the weeds with something like this 
could be leading to a false interpretation by listeners that this is really just about who has a better legal argument. And if somebody else can come forward and create a better legal argument that potentially we could sway minds on the court or that we could change what's going on here. And I don't want to <laughs> lean into that because I see that as um, giving potentially false hope that at the end of the day, uh, and the dissent of Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan basically said it, that um, the majority overruled Roe and Casey for one and only reason, because it has always despised them and now it has the votes to discard them. The majority theory thereby substitutes a rule by judges for the rule of law. In other words, you can put all this legalese in there and pretend like you have a logical basis, you know, that you march through these steps and that's how you came to your conclusion. But that's BS. And that's not what's happening here. And you're throwing all these words to create a veneer of legitimacy and a veneer of something when in reality it was an emotional decision. You despise the ruling you were in that an emotional bench. ideological decision. I, I think uh, ideology and emotions are are uh, one not the same. twins and very close brothers, right? You know, fair enough. Uh, so, I, but I, I think it's it's a problem in terms of even talking about the test to to go back to that and and to respond to your point that on one hand it's nice that we do have some sort of framework and we say ah, well, they'll be forced to continue following this framework so that there's going to be less um, throwing out of the rule book and crazy jolts to our legal system in the future. But in practice, I think that just creates the veneer of legitimacy and doesn't really provide very much protection, doesn't really uh, do much procedurally, um, and uh, is kind of just a whole bunch of words thrown out the wall. So my, my only disagreement with you isn't on the substance of what you're saying, because obviously to me in reading this, and I've been, I've been having at it with some of my conservative friends, and actually some of my conservative friends even admit that um, both of those cases that I keep mentioning have essentially, if not jettisoned, originalism have just exposed it as a somewhat lacking, if not bankrupt, project. And that's coming from Federalist Society people. Um, my, my only pushback is that the idea that the veneer is bad comes from the feeling that um, you said something that I think goes to the heart of this. You said something like, it's going to make people hopeful that if they come up with a better uh, legal argument, they can reverse this. And I don't think that's the purpose of the veneer, or that's why I think the veneer does matter. We know that if we go deep enough, morality is a mix of emotional instincts and habitual that th thought patterns that then people go through great lengths, efforts, and sophistication to justify through political, judicial, and philosophical explanations, sometimes even tailoring entire judicial doctrines to carry their moral instincts within the given system. But this process of developing justifications, no matter how sincere in its inception, ultimately does create a set of rules. And these rules, over time, do constrict your ability to do anything you want. 
And the maintenance of this structure, while still always abusable, because the system of government is, its nature is corrupt and abused. But having those constrictions over time does help. It creates areas that are beyond the pale. And when you have people like Thomas, who are radical jurists, they will push as far as they can within it and abuse it as far as possible and even cut in stride their own ideas sometimes. Although I think Thomas has been pretty consistent <laughs> for what it's worth. But I don't think it's irrelevant or lacking in value for, you know, in the bigger picture of history. Again, a lot of justice, sorry, a lot of injustice is going to happen under that veneer, but it doesn't invalidate the the bigger project. I... I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I'm sure, you know, the, the reality of most all things is that uh, middle grounds with nuance is, is the truth of most of life. But to, you know, take a polar opposite view for the sake of debate, I think a problem with, um, you know, once again, these tests that, that, that appear to create guardrails around activist judges is that if they don't really... It encourages the people that are attempting to change systems, or very specifically, the individuals with less power in a system, to exhaust their energy and their resources barking up the wrong tree. Because what happens if you think, oh, okay, well, if I work within the framework of, of a test or uh, legal reasoning, um, then I can maybe make some headway and maybe change hearts and minds, is that um, if, if it's all just a smokescreen, what you're going to do is you're going to waste your money. You're going to uh, waste your energy. Uh, how many, you know, of all of us that we, that actual power is speaking less and not having to justify yourself. And so creating a veneer of this is how you justify yourself is going to be a trap for those that are less empowered and have less resources, right? If we look at this when it comes to failing um, welfare systems, um, or often the things that we provide the poor, they're these extremely maze-like uh, administrative systems that are created in order to make, you know, individuals think they can access money, rights, care. But in reality, uh, they expend huge amounts of time, energy, resources trying to work in this convoluted system and often come out empty-handed. So I think a concern with this big long ruling and these tests and the ways that they justify their legal reasoning is it can kind of be, you know, a good way to lull people that don't have the time, energy, or ability to fight in any other way into thinking, ah, let me try to work within the confines of this system. Although and the problem with the two examples that you had for me is that I I come from a uh, general concern, and obviously this is informed by my but the con by my the country that I grew up in, and seeing the the dangers of instability. So I think some areas of government should act fast, and some should be by nature slower. And for um, an uh, a welfare state. And especially when it comes to the state level of offering certain services, this is where you want the government to be at its most dynamic. The Supreme Court is probably one of the areas where you want the, gov the government to be at its most sluggish. And mm, th that's why <clears throat> having, having those layers and barriers are, I think, generally, my instinct is generally 
a good thing there and an awful thing when it comes to the services that a state is trying to provide to its uh, directly to its uh, constituents. I mean, I guess I, I, I get I see both sides here, but I'm, I'm thinking like specifically in the case of of Dobbs v. Jackson, they put forth five guardrails and then didn't really sufficiently uh, su- like support one of them. It was like a fake guardrail, right? Like they, if we if we agree on the premise that the the reliance uh, point was just kind of like a, a sack of horseshit, then they said, "Listen, good people, if you want to change the law, here are five things you must do." I'm not going to do all five of them, but for you, betters of the future, you should. I'm sure Alito will disagree whether or not he has actually met those standards but maybe not maybe even he feels that he had to cut corners in order to reach his desired decision we don't know what he really Mm. believed but we all like the three of us we share we come at it from a shared perspective moral perspective but it's difficult to judge because of our own biases how this ruling would have been read or is read by somebody who truly spent their entire legal career believing that Roe was a moral as well as jurisprudential mistake on the level of Dred Scott. Yeah. So, I mean, for instance, uh, Plessy v. Ferguson uh, was, right. of course, um, cited by the majority opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson, kind of, look, sometimes stare decisis does not. That's respect. segregation, right? Uh, yeah, so separate but equal. Um, yep. So uh, thank goodness that was overturned. Uh, so in other words, if we applied stare decisis, like, I don't know, we have to go within the separate but equal framework, I guess indefinitely, right? Because stare decisis, um, that wouldn't be a good way to organize society. So sometimes if, of course, there are egregious errors made by a court, a court should be able to reverse itself. It's just it needs to be rare. Um, but of course, uh, if you support abortion rights, um, that is quite some comparison saying that, you know, Roe v. Wade was as egregious an error as basically saying separate but equal when we're talking about racial dynamics, you know. So that's, um, in terms of putting myself into his shoes, uh, there was, so in a really, really big opinion, like uh, any Supreme Court opinion, but in this case, and by big, I mean uh, many, many pages, it's not all legal reasoning. A lot of times it is um, personal asides and appealing to Hmm. emotions Uh, and sometimes even taking complete rambles into things that let you know something about that person's personal life, the jurist's personal life, or their, um, emotions more so than anything that's on point about the case. Um, the, all right, I'm going to butcher this word again. So, uh, a Bergefell, is that? A Bergefell, I think. Uh, okay. Well, that one. So, um, I remember reading that opinion and finding it especially rambling and, uh, about, uh, appeals to emotion more than appeals to logic and uh, a little ridiculous, um, frankly. I mean, I definitely uh, am in support of the legal conclusion that the court came to in uh, that gay marriage ruling. However, it was a not an especially rational opinion in, in, in my view from reading that. Uh, and I actually agreed with Scalia in his dissent, which he said, if was that applesauce? Oh, no, that was the Obamacare. ruling. <laughs> well, he said specifically, if I was to ever write an opinion like the majority opinion, 
I would hide my head in a bag. That is, it's, that's unbelievable to say in a, a descent, you know, and uh, really made me chuckle and just really went into it. Like, oh, come on, this is a flowery, ridiculous ruling, you know, all these appeals. To, and basically the things that I found the most flowery and ridiculous is, okay, so I do support uh, gay rights to marriage. However, not from the stance of marriage is this amazing institution that, you know, is so great in a thousand one ways. And it was basically, um, the majority opinion was this big, diatribe that was a pro-marriage um advertisement almost. yeah it was like which, kennedy at its at, at his most lovey-dovey <laughs> purpleness and, right right and so it was it was a very strange thing to read because as a person that you know once again agreed with the the legal conclusion the path that was taken was so personalized and so irrational that it was uh it was very strange to read and in the same way in in dobbs v jackson there was a lot of appeals to emotionality and definitely not legal rationality. I'm going to read one of those sentences just so we get a, a, an idea of, you know, sticking ourselves in Alito's shoes here. Um, the majority opinion wrote on page 34, many people now have an appreciation of fetal life and that when prospective parents who want to have a child view a sonogram, they typically have no doubt that what they see is their daughter or son. Now, that is definitely not you know, appealing to a legal analysis or, any or sort a statistical of analysis for that matter. Yeah, that, that's just an appeal to emotionality. It's basically saying that, um, well, I'm parsing basically what that's saying here is that abortion is uh, morally unconscionable because uh, the emotions that one gets when they see a sonogram. However, if you dig into what that means for the mindset of Alito when he was writing like this, it, there's this big glaring red flag there that is he's looking at it from the perspective of um, two parents that are together in a hospital room uh, viewing a sonogram, you know, viewing the sonogram, right, which is ruling out a huge chunk of how many women experience pregnancy, right? Plenty of them go through it alone. And in his hypothetical of, of the morality here and the emotions here, he's conceptualizing it as basically a married couple looking at a pregnancy, <laughs> And then in terms of how they view a sonogram, he's reading so much emotionality into it in terms of, well, you can clearly see a daughter or son, which if anybody's actually dealt with a sonogram, no, you can't. Uh, you see a collection of blobs. <laughs> and then the person that is, you know, performing the sonogram will tell you, oh, that's a foot or oh, that's a head. But I know very few laymen that are not physicians that walk in, get their, you know, have their very first experience with a sonogram and go in saying, oh, I can clearly see a daughter. Like, it's just, it, you, it's no, it, it's a fuzzy screen with a bunch of blobs. I mean, so, yeah, they, I mean, I mean, the, the reality is this is the, the nonsense, um, pop psychology of, of Alito in this case. It's, right. you can show them a Rorschach stain and they'd go, <laughs> oh, so cute. Because, the context primes them to see their kid. They don't know what they're seeing, but that's what they expect to see. Right, right. He's, he's mapping onto it uh, precisely that there is a emotional reaction of uh, bonding with uh, a grainy image because that is, uh, you know, what you want or what you hope for, which I don't want to invalidate that that is the experience of plenty of pregnant individuals and plenty of expectant couples, certainly, but it is making it extremely clear that he's conceptualizing abortion rights from a privileged, rarefied place. And he is not putting himself into the shoes 
of the reality of so many women that do not want to be pregnant and uh, have a very negative experience of the sonogram or are terrified or XYZ circumstances. So there were so many personal appeals that he was making that uh, make it very clear that this jurist is, is not really empathizing with the reality of so many women and unintended pregnancy. You know, he's just not putting himself in those shoes. He may lack the capacity or he may not want to. And of course, if you conceptualize pregnancy as a thing that is planned between a couple who wants children and has the financial capacity to do so, then you're going to have an entirely different viewpoint on abortion rights than somebody that looks at it from the perspective of, I can empathize with that, that raped 11 year old girl, you know? And and the, the, well, and even generally, if you could take that argument ad absurdum, Considering that there are people who believe so much in the idea that uh, life begins even before conception, and that's why masturbation should be illegal, (laughs) that I can see it's not that far-fetched to imagine people, especially in the political environment where people are trying to take the most extreme position on everything, where you can show somebody a picture of their sperm and they say, ah... So I could see I can see the potential for life there, and then it's like when you, if you do, you do not draw these lines based on the emotional attachment of the people, that's not in any standard for defining life. Hmm. P- people have attachment to their dolls. People have attachments to barnyard animals that they raise in farms. Well, I I think what you're trying to say there is is the point of um, how people can have different emotional responses to stimuli and that there isn't kind of a universal reaction. And the thing that is upsetting to me about the ruling is when it goes into things that are appeals to emotion, it seems to almost be assuming that there is one consistent emotional reaction to pregnancy, childbirth, sonograms, all sorts of stuff. And I read that as kind of, that is some individual's emotional reaction but it is discounting the reality that there is a plethora of emotional reactions out there. And that if you are the individual who has only positive emotional reactions to pregnancy, then you're probably not a person that this ruling applies to as much. Um, you, you know, I want to go back, Chris, to what you were saying earlier and kind of like your conflict about coming onto the podcast at all, because I think you were saying that you're because I mean I was asking all these questions because I come from a place of like what I feel like is ignorance I wanted to have a sense of what the hell's happening what's going on what to what extent do I have or no longer have a right uh right to an abortion like these are the kinds of things that I wanted clarified but what you were saying is that you were you're there you have like an existential concern with spending too much time talking about what the case said because it undermines what's really at play here. And so I want to give you time to kind of unpack that. What do you what do you think that all of this discussion about the case um, takes away attention from? You, you're going to see an awful lot of punditry um, going on and an awful lot of talking points uh, clearly in the result of this ruling. And a lot of people that are very dug into their sides and think that yelling at each other (laughs) is going to be productive or moving the needle or that there's a certain level of um, outrage that will do something. And I think certainly in the modern era, uh, 
all three of us have experienced this sense of we are constantly being screamed at through our technology to care, 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 to an extent that is far beyond what can be productive for any individual. Um, you know, 24-7 news cycles saying, be worried about this, be worried about that, uh, feel like this is urgent, feel like this is a, a tragedy, um, and kind of emotionally manipulating us. So if I am going to lend my voice to this, I wanted to make sure that it would be lending my voice in a way that isn't emotionally manipulating individuals to uh, expend energies in ways that are non-productive uh, and instead be informing in um, ways that don't obscure the issue and instead give people a clear, concrete idea of um, what actions can be taken, if at all, and um, how the law actually works. And uh, there's just a lot of really, really, um, that is often not how media works. That is often not what talking heads are trying to do. Um, that's, uh, sometimes, um, I feel like it's really, really swimming upstream in media. Um, so I didn't want to come on here and just feed an outrage machine or, mm. uh, give an idea of, um, that there's a way to legalize or logic your way out of this problem <laughs> or, mm -hmm. uh, both either feed panic or complacency in either direction. Um, you know, how can lawyers help expediency uh, in public discourse instead of just um, obscure and, and, and led to the, to the screaming rabble. So actually yeah. in that context, and I'm, I'm just pointing out that I'm going to drag you back into the legalese in a moment because I'm going to sure. have you close the loop on substantive due process and what it means for other precedents, if at all. But um, um, I guess we're really doing it in, in narrative. We, we've planted the, the gun in the beginning. <laughs> um, we didn't address what Dobbs means in practice. So you, you were saying about where, where real change could matter, where it can't, what, it, what we're about to deal with, what the new reality is. So what's the post-Dobbs reality? A point of view that is not often discussed about Roe v. Wade is how much that was actually framed, the ruling and, and the opinion was framed more about physicians' rights than women's rights. So uh, the person that wrote the majority opinion in Roe v. Wade, he actually did a fair amount of research in medical school libraries and talked to the AMA and talked to physicians groups and framed it more from the perspective of we need to respect the sanctity of physicians' work and their ability to make patient care decisions. And we, as the, you know, the law or the you know the democratic process should not get in the way of these highly trained professionals and their ability to make decisions on the fly for what's best for their patients. So it wasn't really um, conceptualized or talked about in the ruling as much about how big a deal it would be for patient autonomy so much as it was talking about a big deal for respect for physicians. And that's kind of interesting to me. I think it's interesting to me because it speaks to the Dobbs v. Jackson ruling that just came out in terms of how we do talk about women's rights. And of course, that's extremely important and the decisions that women are going to have to make. But really, at the end of the day, what's being criminalized here are the physicians. And we're making it so difficult for if you're an OBGYN to do your work, um, take care of your patients, 
uh, protect women's lives. We're making the practice of medicine through this ruling be jeopardized. And Roe v. Wade was explicit in terms of how that's very important. And uh, I think Dobbs v. Jackson, that's an angle that isn't going to be talked about by the pundits as much. It goes immediately to women's rights. And we should also be talking about the ability of doctors to make decisions uh, and how difficult it is for the law to come in and legislate as a physician, what can be your menu of options to choose to save lives or take care of patient health? That's interesting. What are some of the other legal ramifications of Dobbs? So rational basis test uh, on, at least from Supreme Court level, for any and all other um, abortion uh, laws passed by states. Um, And so rational basis test is a very, very low bar. So basically it's saying that states can um, it entirely outlaw abortion, um, from the point of conception, basically. And that if they have a rational basis for doing that, um, then that is now constitutional. So it opens the door to, uh, states fully outlawing abortion. Um, now it does not necessarily, uh, the majority opinion did not state this. Kavanaugh's concurrence did state that there is a limit on how states can uh, legislate in regarding abortion, as in they can't go so far as to prevent individuals from traveling to state to state. They can't prosecute people for traveling from state to state to get an abortion. And And this is going to be tested in the next month or years because the the, uh, states are going or already in the process of passing laws to criminalize women trying to get an abortion out, out of state. And this is going to get to the Supreme Court and we'll see if people agree with Kavanaugh, right? It it was, so uh, concurrences, just to provide a legal basis, a majority opinion is what is, has legal binding, uh, you know, effect. Okay. It is, it is basically the law of the land is, is what a majority opinion is. Concurrences uh, have no real legal effect. It's um, basically letting you know what's happening in the mind of the person that wrote the concurrence or, you know, where they personally stand on a thing, but it doesn't really have any legal effect. But at uh, a minimum, it says when Kavanaugh says, uh, when Kavanaugh, when Kavanaugh, got his fucking name, when Kavanaugh writes this, it at a minimum says, assuming that he is not being insincere, or that you're not going to have six justices for if you try to get um, criminalization of uh, out-of-state abortion through the courts. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not, you don't necessarily know because you can't really, it, uh, so concurrences can be joined by other justices and, and things, and Kavanaugh's concurrence was just him. So uh, it's not really speaking in what's happening in the minds of the nine No, no, that's right, that you're not going to get six justices like they did for uh, Dobbs. Kavanaugh is out. So now now you know that you're on a, on the thread of one uh, conservative justice if you're going to try it. Yes. Uh, now, of course, I, I don't necessarily want to say that with complete certainty because theoretically, the three uh, liberal justices maybe could uphold a state law that that bans women right. traveling state right. to state for abortion. We don't, you know, that's a hypothetical. We don't have... It's political theorizing on my part, but I presumably yeah. that's the sort of theorizing that uh, a state would have to put itself through before passing a law, thinking that they're going to defend it. They're, they're going to take that into account, obviously. Yeah, and I, uh, speaking as an attorney, I do not think, uh, I, I would put a lot of money on uh, states that were trying to ban interstate travel for abortions ever being upheld uh, by a Supreme Court because uh, there is, um, mainly there's a constitutional right to interstate travel, which is 
very, 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 very established um, in myriad of court cases. So uh, to uphold that ban, it would have to be chipping away at a humongous constitutional right. And I just don't see that happening anytime soon. So I think states that are trying to ban interstate travel for the purposes of abortion, that, that's that's not going to be upheld. Uh, and then Kavanaugh also in his concurrence went into how um, prosecuting women who have had abortions um, after the abortion and criminalizing that and going after them is also probably uh, not going to be upheld uh, because uh, due process uh, arguments. So, I mean, good on him for, I guess, trying to assuage those particular fears. But, you know, I think that's some pretty thin gruel um, in terms of uh, what states can um, get away with passing now. Um, and in terms of... Is, was there, is there any indication if uh, 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 laws like Texas, I guess that they don't matter anymore, but the, the sort of... Um, civil persecution approach that Texas took where people can basically bring, um, like play their own bounty hunters of, of abortion providers. Is that approach ever going to be tested in the court or now Texas is just going to ban abortion flat out. And this, this case is not even going to come to the Supreme court. Uh, well, I, I, I haven't actually been following that. I, I can't really speak specifically to uh, the Texas law in terms of deputizing private citizens to uh, go after uh, people that provide abortion services. I do think it was um, a, a brilliant legal uh, approach, um, that particular Texas law. Um, I, I, I have a lot of respect for finding that kind of loophole uh, because... <laughs> What, what happens is it, it makes it very hard to challenge that kind of law because you can't go. So for instance, Dobbs v. Jackson, who is Dobbs? Dobbs is a state official who would be enforcing the uh, law in Mississippi. Uh, so normally to get standing to bring things up in court, you need to have a hook that is a governmental uh, enforcement side. So if the enforcement is not at all governmental, it makes it a lot harder to, uh, go after, uh, laws like that. And so it's kind of brilliant from a, um, legal gamesmanship perspective. And I, I have a lot of, um, respect for that, um, at least in terms of how strategic. Yeah. Even among the vile, there is great creativity. Well, yeah. I mean, you, you can, um, you you can learn from uh, their uh, strategies and um, their wiles. Yeah, Gavin Newsom said that he is going to learn from from the strategy and try to apply it to uh, gun control. Yeah, well, and look if you if you don't um, like or agree with something, uh, then I mean, I still as an attorney, <laughs> I like to say that it's just uh, you can have pleasant debates and um, you know just respect the, uh, what they brought to the debate. So I respect it. Very from the, kind of you. No, I, I, um, I, no, I don't I know, actually, I'm sure, I'm sure your reality, your visceral reaction to it is, is at least somewhat similar to mine in the sense that a lot of respect for the art, uh, artfulness of this and the, 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 the legal scheming of it, but also deep disgust by the social consequences that they are, apparently okay with by implementing well, this. I, I'm actually, no, I definitely wouldn't call it disgust. Uh, uh -huh. as, as, as a woman 
my emotional response to all these things is just fear. Um, and so there's, um, I, it's, there's definitely a lot of fear-based reactionality in terms of, um, what this means for, I, I, I work at a, um, I have volunteered at a women's clinic, um, and, uh, have done so locally where I live for a little while. And so I am face to face with, um, women who avail themselves of either abortion services or any other women's health services and, uh, talk to them and, um, understand some of their choices. And so uh, the, you know, there's just a huge amount of fear that so many women's lives are going to get a lot harder and a lot scarier and a lot more dangerous and people will die. Um, and that I am definitely not as removed from those risks as I would like personally. Um, so it's, it's just a little bit of an animal. There was a quote about abortion that I read once that said that no woman wants an abortion as she wants an ice cream cone or a car. Uh, hmm. A woman wants an abortion as an animal caught in a bear trap, which is to gnaw off its own leg. Um, hmm. And that's kind of how uh, my emotional uh, sentiments about a lot of um, how much I rely on abortion rights is, which is that uh, I don't want to need these things. But as a person of childbearing age, I can't guarantee that I don't. I can't guarantee that I won't in any hypothetical uh, be stuck in a bear trap one day. And I would be terrified to not have a tool to get out of that bear trap. And this is removing one of those tools. So as a person of childbearing age, I, I feel less safe. And it's it's definitely not coming from a place of... Um, I, I actually respect it. Oh, just disgust almost seems to come from a, a lack of respect. I respect the heck out of um, the strategies and the maneuvers and the uh, machinations of the patriarchy in order to keep <laughs> me in this particular predicament. It is uh, very well done. I respect it. I just fear it. Mm. Um, so it, it, I, I don't want to yell so much as just curl into a ball and, um, and rock back and mm. forth and try to find my happy place. It's very scary. We were just talking to David French Crisa, who's a conservative writer, um, who's pro pro-life been pro-life for most of his life. He's, uh, uh, in terms of like his activism uh, and his legal practice as well. Um, he is, uh, not so extreme, uh, as some on that, on that side of the argument are. Um, and, and one of the things he said that I think was interesting was he said, I, if anyone is really seeking to end abortion, you cannot achieve it through the legal framework. We all know that just banning abortions does not end abortion. Um, and he, he says that for abortion to end, we need a cultural shift on, for you on the other side, pro-choice, uh, I, I don't know if you'd characterize yourself as an activist, uh, but definitely, I know I'm an activist. Okay. Absolutely. And, so, and, so, and, so, and so, and then, and if you, as a pro-choice activist, do you agree that it, it will require something extra legal, um, it to, in kind of enshrine choice or, or is there, is there like a, a world of cultural shift that needs to happen? Uh, how do you, how do you look at the kind of cultural versus legal 
pathways towards ensuring choice? Yeah, well, I mean, I, um, I actually, I think in every kind of debate in terms of um, where people are going to be nicest or friendliest, in my experience in life, the more we turn um, things into grand, big ideals, the screamier people can be <laughs> and the more escalated people can be. Um, and the more we make things tiny and personal and a discussion between two people about what their life has been like and what they want their life to be, the more uh, de-escalated I've seen a lot of political debates. So one-on-one -on -one speaking about what it's been my experience being a woman of childbearing age and just talking about that with, uh, and I've, I've spent time talking about it with very, very um, pro-life, staunch pro-life, you know, conservatives is there's still a massive amount of commonality in terms of what we want from life, how we see the world, all sorts of things. Um, just saying, this is what it's like to be me. What's it like to be you? <laughs> Normally is a tendency to deescalate things. Um, so I probably would have less disagreement with, uh, you said David French, um, than I think some people may assume even saying that I'm an activist because I think he and I both agree that abortion is, um, not a thing that we want to have more people having, um, that it is uh, often a last recourse that I would love to, you know, avert sooner. <laughs> so I think he and I are probably on the exact same page about let's make a world with less abortions. Um, and then it's just kind of how do we make that happen? And for me, I see a world with less abortions is going to be uh, access to contraception and a lot more female autonomy uh, in a whole bunch of ways and much more ability and acknowledgement of consent on the front end with women, you know, which is a battle that we're fighting for, I think, culturally at the moment. Um, and therefore, there will be hopefully less um, unintended pregnancies, which then are uh, bad and, and um, taxing and difficult situations. Uh, so I think culturally what we need to do is just spread the word about what it is like to be a woman facing these choices. One in four women in this country is going to have an abortion in their lifetime. And that that is a huge chunk of women. And yet we tend to talk about these things in hypotheticals and big grand uh, ideas of what is life and religion and these huge overarching themes instead of just, this is why I made the choice I did because here are the circumstances of my life. This is why I'm afraid or this is why I feel this way because of my personal circumstances. Let me tell you what it's like to be me and hope that as a fellow human, you can understand that and we can find a middle ground because I truly don't believe that the other people on the other side of the aisle are vastly different humans than I am or want different things from life. They just um, haven't been me. <laughs> so they don't understand what my choices are like. And it's a little bit harder for them to empathize and vice versa. I haven't been them. Uh, you know, I can, so I, I should try to get empathy for what it's like to be going through this world thinking that abortion is, is never justified in such a tragedy and all that kind of stuff. What type of life circumstances give you that perspective? And really try to have empathy for that and really try to, to get into their mind and, and see, okay, why is looking at the world that way helping them live a happier life or a better life, you know? And um, 
just try to connect as individuals. And that's that's what we we need to do. I, I think instead of big grand sweeping legal arguments, uh, the day-to-day grassroots arguments are kind of if you had an abortion, talk about it. Talk about it with your loved ones, talk about it with your friends, talk about it publicly, um, acknowledge what it what the reality of reproductive choices for women feels like as a woman, or what it was like to go through it if you're a male partner, to just be much more open and shameless about talking about. Uh, all the factors that go in personally to these decisions. Um, And the more that we can do that and then be heard and empathized with as just people uh, going through life, trying to do what's best for us and our loved ones, hopefully the more the importance of having these rights and these choices will be accepted. Um, Hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, there's a a lot there. Well, and and also I guess the last thing is, you know, to, to then practice what I'm preaching here. Um, So a hypothetical that a lot of people don't think about, but happened in my family is that my dad's mother, and I ran this by him before I came on the podcast, so I'm not putting out uh, any dirty laundry that my family is not okay with. Um, But my dad's mother uh, had six uh, live births. However, um, three of those live births were microcephalatic, which basically means that you were born with a severely smaller and substantially less functional brain. Um, so much so that uh, these these babies, their their heads look smaller, like you know, it, it just they're they're different looking babies and have severe impairments uh, because the the microcephaly. And at the time when she was having children. Uh, which would have been the 50s and 60s, she wanted to avail herself of an abortion after her first microcephalatic child because she could tell that the pregnancies are different with the, the microcephalatic children that she had. And she did not want to carry that to term for a whole variety of reasons um, because of the amount of suffering that these children would go through because of how uh, resource intensive taking care of them was, how basically the the horrific difficulties of what happens when you have that genetic abnormality. And so she very strongly believed that she would have wanted to get abortions and she wouldn't, she wasn't able to legally. And she was very angry about that and the amount of pain and suffering that it caused in her and her family's life throughout her life. She would often talk about it and the severe negative consequences of not being able to uh, abort a child who is going to have a very severe genetic disorder. So what ended up happening is that uh, the live births that she had, one of them, a physician performed a procedure to relieve swelling in the brain, but really um, what that procedure did would, there was a 0% survival rate of that procedure. So in effect, it euthanized a newborn. Um, And then uh, other live births were institutionalized. and did not form a relationship with the uh, not genetically disordered children. So that's massive amounts of personal pain and suffering that happened in my family uh, around the ability to access abortion and change the course of lives and touch me personally. And at least, you know, from what I know of my grandmother's sentiments, um, it would have made a massive difference 
uh, in, in the health and welfare and happiness of her and our family if she had been able to avail herself of those rights. So, um, and that's just, you know, one particular <laughs> personal thing. And I would, right. I would love for anybody to say, by all means, you know, I'm going to step in as, as a person who's, who's not her and tell her what the right decision with something like that is, you know, let, let me come in with a law and say, no, no, you're, you're not allowed to, to say that, uh, you, you should abort that, you know, and, or make that choice. You're going to bear that pain and suffering. You're going to have to go through that three times. And, you know, there, there's no other options. I mean, I like to think that people have more empathy than that and, and realize mm. that life is complicated and that especially as a caring, loving mother who very much wants children, she should have been able to do what she thinks is best for her family and her children. Yeah. The, I mean, ultimately, there's a s still it, it was interesting reading some of the David French articles because he 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 noted, for example, in a, uh, a girl in his class who became pregnant as a teenager and faced in a tremendous amount of pressure to abort. Um, and so reading that article, I was really struck by like, I guess from his perspective, there is this there's like this big societal pressure to get rid of an unwanted pregnancy. And it was like really hard because she wanted to keep the kid. And I hadn't really like thought about that because from my perspective, it feels like there's a tremendous pressure not to uh, abort for so many people and so much internalized shame and stigma around it. So it's really interesting that for like two different Americans, you can have a completely different understanding of social stigma around around this one procedure, which is, I don't know, it just kind well, of blew my mind. I mean, I think my response to that would be that um, I don't think how much societal pressure to terminate or not uh, there is, is going to map onto whether we have a legal right uh, to it as much as right. um, conservatives would like to admit. There was... Uh, women who had unintended pregnancies throughout the course of history had massive pressure to not keep that pregnancy. Um, it just was, you know, historically women would throw themselves off of cliffs or um, use coat hangers or all sorts of things. I, I mean, the pressure to terminate uh, is always going to be there in a thousand and one ways. Uh, we can't, and I think, you know, I, I agree with conservatives as in I would like a world where there would be um, less of those pressures um, on plenty of women. You know, it would be nice if women, less women had to make the decision of I want to terminate because I can't afford a child. You know, that's sad to me. Um, and how expensive we make childbirth and child rearing, all that kind of stuff. I would love a world where there was less of those pressures bearing on somebody who wants a kid, but just the circumstances make that untenable, you know? But uh, I don't think the fact that we have a legal right to safe abortions is really going to put any sort of dent on whether or not a woman feels coerced when she's pregnant. At the end of the day, coercion is going to come from lack of power. So as much as women have less power is going to be what makes them coerced or not. It has nothing to do with uh, you know, this ruling. Uh, women are going to be coerced for as long as they have less systemic power um, in, in either direction, to keep or not keep. And it depends on the individual, but the coercement will be there. So I was 
listening to this podcast, uh, Crazy, that I want to get your thoughts on because it's it's a podcast I listen to sometimes called We Can Do Hard Things. Uh, really good conversations, occasionally cheesy, but overall I enjoy. And there was one episode where one of the hosts kind of did like a monologue where she is talking about where she thinks feminists have gone wrong, basically. She describes kind of the way that feminists have been thinking about uh, abortion as this their sole focus and she describes it as kind of focusing on the roof of the house and she says you know we've been so focused on the roof of the house that we've forgotten about the walls things like you know advocating for more democratic processes like fixing gerrymandering or getting rid of voter id laws like things like this and she suggests that if if feminists had been more committed to taking care of the walls then you know the roof wouldn't have caved in essentially um and so i'd love to get your thoughts i definitely think that abortion rights are are the tip of the iceberg and what is underneath that iceberg is um all sorts of things when it comes to financial uh justice and by that i mean at the end of the day i think might makes right if we look at the course of human history i think a lot of um who makes the laws and who makes the rules are those that have more systemic power and as long as uh, women lack systemic power in terms of voting with money, uh, voting with land rights. I mean, if you look at the percentage of land globally that is owned by women, it's it's a shockingly small percentage, uh, are going to be bigger factors in how many women find themselves uh, having to make abortion choices. So change bigger things in terms of uh, also pay compensation. You know, that that's that's huge. Uh, I mean, it's it's very simply, very obviously ties into abortion rights because uh, it matters if you have the money to pay to travel, then these abortion laws are not going to be so ruinous in your life. If you don't have the money to pay to travel, if you're one of the women who's trapped in lower earning jobs or below the poverty line, and there's more women living below the poverty line than men, then these laws really, really impact you substantially more. So look at ways that women can get more financial resources in order to raise their life circumstances directly correlates to um, the abortion debate and abortion access. So yeah, there's there's a floor of things <laughs> that are definitely contributing to these debates. So before we finish, I don't think we actually got to close the loop on what's Thomas's objection to the idea of substantive due process. Right. Um, So Thomas in his concurrence wrote that substantive due process has harmed our country in many ways and, quote, accordingly, we should eliminate it from a jurisprudence at the earliest opportunity, which is uh, massive legally. Uh, That is... um, well, just speaking as attorney, that's just about as fire brandy coming out swinging wowza uh, that you can write in an opinion in terms of shaking up the way that the court has been ruling for the past 50 years. Um, so his general concept of all substantive due process is that, you know, we basically only have rights that are the enumerated ones. And um, finding unenumerated rights and saying that states can't legislate in ways that would step on unenumerated rights are just just hogwash. Um, so it's an extremely strict uh, interpretation of the Constitution. 
Is it a rejection um, of unenumerated rights or of reading unenumerated rights through substantive due process? Yes, I, I guess more if you're trying to parse it the uh, latter instead of the former. Um, but if you can't read enumerated rights in unenumerated rights in through substantive due process, we don't really have any other major mechanism uh, in terms of jurisprudence in finding unenumerated rights. So substantive due process is how we find unenumerated rights. So uh, I, I say he's just basically getting rid of credence to major unenumerated rights. It's also a gigantic firebranding ruling because that does basically explicitly call for the overturning of 2003's Lawrence v. Texas, which was a banning of, uh, it basically said you can't ban gay sex. Uh, It also would be calling for an overturning of, or Birchfeld, or however that is pronounced. (laughs) Um, it, It is explicitly basically saying uh, I'm coming out swinging against uh, gay marriage rights and ability for gay couples to basically, you know, be gay couples. Uh, and then also um, going after contraception rights. I mean, massive amounts of jurisprudence is based on finding privacy. Because Obergefell, Griswold, Lawrence all relied on substantive due process to reach their uh, decision. Correct. Yeah, it, it would be asking for a grand sweeping overhaul of so much of Supreme Court jurisprudence. I think maybe the silver line of that is because it looks so far to one side. I think um, it's it's not going to sway the majority of the court ever. And so it's just kind of a Clarence Thomas uh, having his own opinion and he's free to state his own opinion, but in terms of how much that's actually going to impact the court or the day-to-day lives of citizens or, uh, further Supreme Court rulings, I don't think very much. Um, so Kavanaugh's concurrence was substantially more, uh, even keeled than that. Robert's concurrence was substantially more even keeled and the majority opinion was substantially more even keeled. So, uh, Thomas just has his uh, um, stance, but I don't think it's going to sway very many on the court. Uh, so this goes to the question that made by this goes to the point made by the dissent that any attempt to claim, as Alito did to some extent, as Kavanaugh definitely did, that the rejection of substantive due process in this case doesn't apply to other cases like uh, Griswold, Lawrence, Obergefell. Um, in other words, that don't worry, we are not setting the stage for a series of overturning precedents. Um, but the dissent said that all these claims are essentially incoherent or hypocritical and that there is no, there's nothing in the opinion as delivered that really creates a clear carve out or that really locks abortion as a unique case. Um, But even if incoherent, you're saying that there's just no appetite in the court as it is now to fiddle with these other precedents. Well, I don't know. So the, um, There is, of course, this whole conversation that's happening politically right now about to what extent did um, Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett uh, 
purposely mislead Congress when they were being confirmed, right? Uh, how they were asked questions about Roe v. Wade, and uh, they said this is established precedent, and you know we respect established precedent, and how that was really kind of implying that they wouldn't go around and do exactly this. So, um, to what extent are the conservative justices interested in hiding the ball, and still interested in hiding the ball, as in uh, they may have complete intent to overturn um, gay marriage rulings, uh, overturn uh, contraception rulings, uh, overturn big major things. And they're just not explicitly saying that right now because they don't want to appear that activist. They don't want to show their hand that much. Uh, And I was not especially soothed by Kavanaugh's attempt to appear even keeled in his concurrence. I was not especially soothed by Robert's Uh, attempt to appear even keeled in his concurrence. So Roberts basically said that we would have upheld, uh, he he wanted to uphold the 15-week ban um, and yet not completely overturn Roe v. Wade, which is a kind of splitting the baby maneuver, which I'm not sure would have, um, he's certainly attempting to appear even keeled, but I'm not sure if it's at the end of the day any less extreme than the majority ruling. Uh, And I I actually find some of the attempts by some conservative jurists to appear more middle of the line to potentially be more sinister. Uh, there's certainly when we talk about um, when we talk about people that face discrimination. In some ways, uh, the whole smiling to your face and talking behind your back is arguably sometimes more detrimental than saying to your face, "Oh, I'm not going to give you the job because you're." black or you're female or you're old or something, right? If you get an explicit statement like that, it's very easy to go around and sue or at least directly confront what's happening. But when it's behind a curtain and not made explicit and not said directly to you, what it creates is as a paranoia and almost a feeling of insanity in the person being discriminated against. They're still facing the negative consequences of discrimination, but they're fighting ghosts when they try to talk about it. And so in that same way, uh, the attempts by some of these conservative jurists to appear even keeled makes me feel a bit paranoid and like I'm fighting ghosts, as in I think I see more radicalism in there lurking, but they're not saying it explicitly in the way that a Thomas is saying it explicitly, so I'm stuck fighting ghosts. Um, So I'm not especially soothed by, (laughs) by some of the attempts from some of the conservative justices to appear uh, middle ground. I don't think that's dispositive on how they'll rule in future rulings. I do think major, uh, I would say, steps forward um, in terms of gay rights uh, and in terms of women's rights uh, and reproductive, you know, healthcare is really being challenged right now. And we'll just have to wait and see, I guess, unfortunately. Okay. Woo. Thank you for <laughs> getting deep and dirty on this for into the second hour. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, I can talk about this forever. Before we close, and I'll remind listeners that we have a whole additional discussion on the question of the Alito leak on our paid subscriber section on on Substack, certain.substack.com. Uh, it's my plug. But now, uh, Chris, if you have a plug, if there were... Uh, if there's uh, a place that you want to send people who want to learn more about this or any recommendations um, from your perspective uh, that you'd like to share? 
well, while you may think abortion access is important as, let's say, a Caucasian woman of childbearing age and all that kind of stuff, uh, that there is entirely different concerns and solutions and uh, things that are necessary immediately for other women in other circumstances. Um, And that speaking to women in other circumstances and asking them what they need and asking them the best way to help is going to be the best way to move forward. So uh, speaking to community organizers in the South, uh, often in communities of color, those are going to be the communities that are most hit by this soonest. So um, getting their advice on who to donate to, how to organize, uh, where to travel, that kind of stuff, that's going to be vital. There is, I, okay, so it's, I'm going to spell it. I need ana.com. That is a website that is, that provides basically roadmaps for a woman that is living in a state that has lost abortion access and then needs to figure out what to do if she wishes to have an abortion. Um, And in terms of that, then I would, you know, uh, punt the question in terms of, I don't think I'm on the ground enough to really speak to what the best things to do are. (laughs) I'm not in the affected communities uh, and um, other women are. Thank you, Carissa. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. We are at uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and enemies or support us if you like extra content, including to be decided extra bonus content from one of us quirks. And until next time, stay sane. Do, 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 do.